Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude. Today we are going to talk about the life of Eduard Limonov and the Nazball movement. You can have different opinions on Limonov as a writer or a person, and we and Kirill are gonna argue about that. But you have to agree that he was an artist by nature. His literary works and poems were questionable, yet his primary artistic domain was life itself. So we are going to discuss his crazy biography, various countercultures of Soviet and post-Soviet era, the destruction of left and right dichotomy, political extremism in 90s Russia, and the rise and fall of the Russian Netball Party. Before I start on Limonov's biography, though, we should discuss national Bolshevism for a bit. Kirill, are you familiar with Ernst Nikish and other proto-Netsbols of the Weimar Republic? In what way Limonov's Netsbol party was different from them? Well, yes, I am familiar with Ernst Nikish, and um, there are quite a few similarities, actually. So... Um, the national Bolshevist movement in interwar Germany uh, consisted of three parts. The first was um, nationalist tendencies within the communist movement, socialists who were patriots at the same time, like for example when the communist party um, supported the nationalist fight against France when France occupied part of Germany in 23. This was the so-called Schlageter course, named after Leo Schlageter, who was a nationalist um, far-right activist who led the resistance against the French. So this was like the first thing, uh, communists who supported patriotic uh, movements. The second part was people from the Völkisch camp, so far-right nationalists who were seeking alternatives to capitalism, to liberal laissez-faire economics and so on. So this was um, basically far-right people curious about left-wing economics and um, they were united by the third current, which was basically just hatred against the Weimar Republic. Both of uh, the camps were extremists in the sense that they were against the parliament, they were against the liberal bourgeois order in Germany after 1918, and they found some common ground. The national Bolshevist movement as such mostly grew inside the intellectual milieu of the conservative revolution. In the terminology of um, Armin Moller, who was Ernst Jünger's uh, private secretary and wrote uh, basically the textbook on the conservative revolution. These people were part of the category he named national revolutionaries. So these were uh, people who had a strong affinity for social questions and, and socialism, and uh, they didn't see themselves as left-wing or right-wing. Uh, they saw themselves as above this division. This were the so-called Tatkreis, around Hans Zera. Members of this group were Ernst Jünger himself and his brother, um, of course Otto Strasser, who was later purged from the Nazi movement, and Ernst Nikisch himself. Uh, Nikisch is quite an interesting case. His biography is in some ways um, 
similar to Limonov's. So uh, Nikesh was a socialist. He was a member of the Social Democrat Party, which are the classical Marxists until the founding of the Communist Party in Germany. He turned against internationalism in early 23. And basically his ideology was kind of the Stalinist version of socialism within one country. Except he of course had more contact with German nationalists and right-wing thinkers. An alliance between Germany and the Soviet state. Yes, that was the foreign policy goal of the National Bolshevist movement. They wanted to ally with the young Soviet Union to destroy the liberal West. This is basically the whole foreign policy program. There is uh, not much nuance to it. It's just ally with the Bolsheviks to destroy the liberals. Of course, they were used uh, as sometimes as useful idiots by the communists, sometimes the other way around. And uh, in the end, they were mostly purged because they were members of the... Some of them were members of the left wing of the National Socialist Party. Nikesh uh, was arrested in 37 and uh, sentenced to life in prison. Then he was freed by the Soviet army in 45. He joined the Communist Party and later the SED, so the ruling party in, the, in Socialist Germany. But um, then he left them in the 50s and then he went back to West Germany. So he didn't like uh, liberal Germany, he didn't like Socialist Germany and he was basically all the time... Um, a contrarian. Yes, he was a contrarian. This is what uh, Netsballs are. And Limonov is not an exception because until the return of Crimea, he was a total contrarian in every country that he's ever been in. Netsballs on the internet or the actual Netsballs, uh, Netsball thinkers or activists from history are always dissatisfied with the world. They are always uh, rebels. Of course, without Limonov, there would be no Netsball revival. Basically, it was a half-forgotten ideology that was resurrected in the 90s in Russia. But uh, we should start at the beginning. So, Limonov was a writer, a poet, a Russophile expat, a personal friend of uh, Radovan Karadzic and Arkan, uh, a misogynist, an aspiring bodybuilder, a cloud chaser, and a dandy. And possibly a homosexual. Actually, let's uh, tackle this early on. Claim that Limonov is homosexual is just as fair as saying Bep is homosexual. Literally no difference between Limonov's quasi-homosexuality because of his uh, half-fictional uh, memoir and Bep's insistent posting of uh, dominated by Doug. <laughs> there is no difference. Well, well, I have to disagree a bit. Um, I Actually, I don't think it uh, makes sense to spend too much time on this single question, but uh, there is quite a difference. I mean, Limonov led the life of a typical homosexual, or he looked like a typical homosexual. He lived the life of a homosexual with uh, fictional wives like lesbians and prostitutes. He kind of created a... His Nutsball movement was a kind of a fascist movement from some gay BDSM movie. And in his main book, he 
tells about how he was homosexual so and if that was not true i mean it's a it's an autobiography he later said it was fictionalized of course so um but i don't know um he later said it was meant to be provocative um and so on but what does that tell us uh, i think it uh, tells you uh, that you can't trust such an author like uh, if somebody writes uh, okay semi-fictionalized autobiography and if he says that things about um, him are not true then that means he's a liar and you can't really uh, trust whatever he says Yes, it was uh, a major shot in the foot before doing politics and it was uh, in tune with the times of crazy 90s. But yeah, let's start at the beginning. Limonov was born in 1943 in the family of a Soviet officer. As a typical military family, they moved from city to city and they finally landed in Kharkov, which is a Russian industrial city in eastern Ukraine. His real name is Eduard Savenka. Limonov is a pseudonym that he used to cover up the non-prestigious Ukrainian surname. Since uh, Limonov is a writer, I will be listing all the books that are translated in English that are portraying in some way the events of his life. He was growing up as a gopnik in the 50s in the outskirts of Kharkov, the district called uh, Saltovka. It wasn't that pretty. You can read about it in one of his best books, in my opinion, Memoirs of a Russian Punk. It's much better than his most popular work, It's Me, Eddie. Actually, Limonov was right. If he didn't write It's Me, Eddie, he wouldn't get popular at all. It's kind of a sad state of affairs. His much better book, uh, Memoirs of a Russian Punk, it shows uh, the darker side of post-war Russia in a really surprising way. Uh, not only the poverty or misery-wise, no, uh, but the moral degradation, the local gangs, uh, America-file teenagers uh, that spoke in the Runglish pidgin uh, in the middle of nowhere in eastern Ukraine. Three basic paths that a kid from an industrial Soviet city could take. Most obvious one is picking up a trade and uh, doing manual labor at a factory. The pay at the factory usually wasn't that bad. An overall decent, an archetypal Soviet lifestyle. Flat in Khrushchevka, a wife a little younger than you, that you're growing old with uh, a couple of kids, uh, pension, alcoholism, dominoes, soccer on black and white TV. It's cozy in a way, but uh, boring and could be physically demanding at certain areas. Okay, there was uh, a second path, higher education. Above all other professions, uh, USSR needed its engineers the most, so if you could grok the math, uh, it was expected of you to become an engineer. Engineers were intelligentsia of the factory life. They heavily differed from the average worker in terms of culture and uh, mental abilities, but uh, they were not making more money at all. In some cases, being a factory worker was probably more beneficial than being an engineer at the same factory. 
it led to the archetype that was called простой советский инженер, simple Soviet engineer, poor intelligent person with a lot of aspiration in life, but not a lot of wealth or chances. So the third path was the military. Soviet army always needed new recruits, young blood. USSR was militaristic after all, and if it had any social mobility, it was probably inside the army. If you knew what you were doing, being a military man was very much rewarding. Like in Limonov's case, it made possible the trad lifestyle where the wife didn't work, because a lot of military families were exactly this way. Those three paths of Soviet life, a worker, an engineer and a military man, the latter was probably the most normal, but still, hero of this podcast, Eduard Limonov, wasn't satisfied with them. Probably because in post-war Soviet Union, Americanization already took its root. Not because people were actually like speaking English or listening to Elvis non-stop, but the fantasies of young Soviet people that were born in the 40s, say, were seriously different because they knew and they felt that there is also a different lifestyle that was promoted in American movies and it was a wave of striving to liberate yourself or to make it big somewhere else. So our rebel without a cause from Kharkov, who regularly slit his wrists and even got locked in a psychiatric bin for suicidal attempts, was not content with neither of these prospects. Actually, he worked at a factory right after school for about a year. I think it was just to get the taste for a working man's life, just to write about it later. I think most of the things in Limonov's lives were for this purpose. After working at a factory for a year, he wanted to become a poet, so basically not to work in his life at all. He moved to Kharkov's downtown in search of other pretentious poets and artists and other fuck-ups just like him. He also looked for a ticket that would let him leave his beloved Saltovka and move to the more trendy part of Kharkov, where all the cool people lived. So that's when 19-year-old Limonov saw a woman that was frequenting the artistic underground of Kharkov, the chunky Jewish lady by the name of Anna Moiseevna Rubinstein, that was uh, 10 years older than him. Like an Ukrainian gigolo that he was, he moved into her apartment and proclaimed himself her husband. We are investigating the claim of his alleged homosexuality. And we should, you know, start checking out some boxes. Come to think of it, marrying kind of fat Jewish lady that is 10 years older than him is a bit suspect. And I mean, there was a proverb even in the Soviet Union at that time that a Jewish woman is not a piece of jewelry, but a means of transportation. 
because uh, having a Jewish wife, uh, Jews were the only people mostly allowed to leave the Soviet Union. No, uh, his Jewish wife actually stayed in Kharkov, uh, and he left uh, through Jewish help, sure, but uh, through other means. Uh, so basically, no, uh, Rubinstein helped him to stay in downtown Kharkov, the most prestigious place in the world. Jewish uh, people from Kharkov and other Ukrainian cities weren't uh, as uh, affluent as, uh, you know, Moscow Jews or Peter's Jews. Those Jews were probably more alike their regular counterparts that was uh, in the Pale of Settlement. She called herself a schizo, and she fucked every young Russian poet that she came across. Limonov had a very funny quote on this. If it weren't for Jewish women, then Russian poets would have no audience. They lived about five years together uh, in the same flat uh, that Anna's mom lived. That's when Limonov became a tailor. If we are to uh, construct a homosexuality scale out of 10, where 10 is a raging homo, he has a score of 2 out of 10 for now. Because uh, being a tailor, is it gay? What do you think? I'm not sure he, uh, he did it himself. Um, as far as I know, Limonov's biography, it's far more likely that he made uh, his wife sew the jeans and he just sold them like a speculant. I think he was a genuine tailor. Post-war USSR, like in any other white country at the time, there was a heavy emphasis on fashion. What separated USSR from the rest of the world, though, there was no clothes, no jeans, no slim-fitted pants, no cool jackets. And uh, tailors were like uh, narco-dealers uh, during that time, and every spoiled general son or a poor stilaga went to personal tailor to get uh, his flex on. Uh, Limonov uh, in Russia was known more of a tailor than a poet or a writer, and all the people that knew him told exactly just that. Russian word of this episode is stilaga. It's a bit dated now, uh, and it's a slang, but still. Stilaga is a disaffected uh, young Soviet guy or girl who were uh, mindfucked by American culture and created their own rendition of it uh, in Soviet isolation. So they created their own slang using Runglish, like a Russian English pigeon. Their clothing style was based on outdated American trends and their own uh, capabilities. And they had a cynical view of the world and the, I don't know what their analog in the West were, probably beatniks. Yeah, I don't know. It's a kind of uh, unique subculture. I mean, there was something like that in uh, England word uh, stilaga <clears throat> i think it was um introduced by um comedy journal crocodile as a slur basically they adopted it later of course but uh, it started out as a slur i think they called themselves uh, teddy boys uh, just like the british subculture of the time which uh, were people who were themselves working class uh, young people who were dressing like dandies yeah and of course, there was, um, um, I think, um, some of them called themselves Statniki uh, um, after the United States. So just people who 
were only wore American clothes. So basically, Anglo-American cultural domination started in Russia from the 50s. And it was uh, going on since then. There is a good movie about uh, this period. It's called Stilagi. If you know Russian, check it out. This part of his life, his Fox marriage uh, to an older Jewish woman and Stilaga lifestyle with a lot of influential artists from Kharkov that are now either dead or in Israel or in New York is described in his book A Young Scoundrel which was partially translated in the 90s by John Dolan, whom you probably know. So you should check it out, but it's not a full translation, but it's still worth reading. At the age of 24, he finally moved to Moscow. You have to understand, Moscow is above every other city in Russia. It's the base of the Noviop elite. It was always prosperous, even when the rest of Russia was dying and starving. <clears throat> so, if you wanted to become big in the literary and artsy scene, there was no other choice. So he did for eight years, until he snatched a, a younger, hotter girl from a very well-connected family. Are you talking about uh, Shapova? Da, da. Sh uh, Yelena Shapova, yeah. Yeah, uh, who later um, married an Italian count or something oh, and yeah. uh, became Yelena de, de Carli. So, Limonov was the ultimate striver. He was always a pretender, an imposter. He was always trying to get inside some uh, circle that he wasn't a part of, but he really, really wanted to. That's why he became a poet. That's why he uh, went to Moscow. That's why and how he got his uh, affluent uh, young wife. That was a total slut and uh, was also a striver. So their marriage wasn't a happy one because a marriage of two crazy strivers who went um, to America couldn't have a happy ending. Returning to the Moscow in this time, the upscale parties that Yelena Shapova frequented during the 60s and the 70s looked uh, something like this. A dozen of spoiled kids of KGB generals were driving around in expensive foreign cars, getting shit-faced and possibly using illegal substances that were just becoming accessible and having orgies, whereas a regular Soviet citizen was patiently waiting in the line for a can of tuna. So Limonov naturally wanted to be among the first category of people, no matter the cost. And this is where the free segment of our podcast ends. Just admit it, you're hooked and you need to learn more to flex your newly acquired esoteric knowledge on a random art hall that you have a crush on. Free yourself from tedious American monoculture and subscribe to Russians with Attitude to get full access to weekly episodes from the forbidden part of the world. Thank you.